Hello everybody, this week on the Central Matters podcast, Jenny is speaking to Laura James. Now I'm doing this pre and post amble on my own today because I've been pretty selfish. I can't wait for Jamie to come home so that I can listen to the podcast by Laura James because I'm a huge fan of the Odd Girl Out book. So I do apologise, there's no Jamie this week, but I really want to listen to this and I hope a lot of you enjoy this too because Laura James is just amazing um, and I'm totally fangirling now. So I hope you enjoy it, have a listen. We love a net and we love a chat. We love to help and that's a fact. So we have made it our mission to find stuff out. From diagnosis and education, slimming out of your frustration. Chat to folks who've been there too. Collect it together and share it with you. If you know someone we should speak to, send them our way and that's what we'll do. We like to have our sensory natters. You know what? Right, hello everyone, it's Jenny back again with uh, another Sensory Matters show and today I'm dead, dead excited because we're getting to talk to Laura Jones and you probably have her book, which I have read, Odd Girl Out and it's one that I absolutely could not put down it's a fascinating read, so I know many of our community talk about this book and have read this book, so they will be uber excited that I'm getting to chat to you um so how are you today laura great thanks how are you yeah really good thank you really good so i think i'm just going to start the very beginning um because it's a fascinating story where you obviously don't get your diagnosis until you're 45 and you've kind of existed through the world just until that point having no clue that you were on the spectrum but really it came about because you had no i can't say this world ella's Danlos syndrome. Is that how you say it? It's exactly how you say it. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. I and I only found out about that a few months before my autism diagnosis. So I'd sort of always known all my life that there was something physically not right with me. And I always knew that I processed the world differently. But um, like many, many women in my position, I was just constantly either misdiagnosed or essentially made to feel like I was making it up and it was all or it was all in my head. So, yeah, and it was quite by chance that I got my EDS diagnosis. So, yeah, so I count myself quite lucky, really. Yeah. So for, for the for the world that maybe don't know what EDS is, how would you describe it? Um, it's a connective tissue disorder, which means that it affects the collagen in your body. You have faulty collagen and collagen is pretty much um, everywhere in your body. It's in your, you know, it's kind of in your ligaments. It's, it's, um, it's in your joints. It's in your brain. It's everywhere. So, um, so it can affect people very differently. So some people dislocate their joints quite a lot. Some people have horrible digestive issues. Some people um, also um, have autonomic dysfunction as well. So their heart rate won't be steady when they're standing up. It'll kind of go much faster. And I have that too. Some people also have mast cell problems. So they kind of have allergy-like reactions and get very itchy. I mean, it's, it is endless. And being a syndrome, it means that it affects everybody in a kind of different way. Yeah, yeah. So how, how does it affect you? Um, I have horrible digestive issues. Um, my joints aren't particularly stable. Um, I find it really difficult to build any muscle mass. So um, I'm quite weak and feeble. <laughs> um, 
and I have um, POTS, which means that I can't stand up for any long period of time in one space without feeling very faint. Um, and I often kind of have horrible sort of itching um, sessions where just suddenly something will affect me and it will get my mast cells going and there'll be an overproduction of histamine and I'll just be horribly allergic, really, for quite a while. So that, um, that sounds horrendous. So how, how did you, because you've obviously had this all your life, but obviously not discovered until later in life. So how did that become, how was it discovered? Well, I was actually sent a review copy of um, Deliciously Ella's cookbook, um, her very first cookbook. And I saw her on the cover looking all shiny and glamorous and gorgeous. And I kind of read the press release that said that she'd started her diet because she had some rare condition. And being obviously autistic, which I didn't realize at the time, I have to know everything about everything. So I thought, well, it seems quite strange. She looks so healthy. I wonder what it is. So I looked it up and every symptom I read, I thought, but I thought that everyone had that. And I thought everyone had that. And one of the ways you can tell if you have POTS, which is associated with EDS, is to test your heart rate lying down and test it standing up. Okay. So I tested mine and it was exactly as it said on the diagnostic criteria. So I tested everybody else in my house and everyone's was fine apart from my youngest child. And it just suddenly kind of was this light bulb moment where it became apparent that we both had these conditions. Right. And it was it was during going in for something for EDS, wasn't it, that the autism diagnosis was was suggested to you? Is that right? Yeah, I was. Um, I went into a hospital um, in London on the hottest day of that year, and had some tests for POTS, which are really horrible. So they starve you for twenty four hours, mm. then they put you on a tilt table, then they make you drink a carb loaded drink, um, and then they make you very cold, and then they make you very hot, and the whole thing is just hideous. And I kept getting through it. I was just thinking about at the end of this, I can go back to my room and there's going to be a nice cold glass of water and a tuna sandwich and it will all be fine. And when I got back to my room, there wasn't a sandwich. In fact, there wasn't a room. It wasn't quite ready and there was no air conditioning and there was a screaming baby and it was all just too much for me. And so I just had a bit of an epic meltdown. And when that happened, um, the nurse just instantly recognized autism and presumed that I already had an autism diagnosis because so many people with EDS do. Yeah. So she... Um, so she, yeah, so she just presumed I was autistic and then um, and said something along those lines. And I thought, oh, it's like when you go into hospital to have, you know, I don't know, an ingrowing toenail removed and then suddenly you find that they've amputated your leg. Um, but then I started Googling it and realised I didn't know that much about autism and then suddenly that all kind of slotted into place too. Wow, okay. So when you said you had a meltdown when you went back and there was no glass of water and a tuna sandwich, meltdown yes. for everyone varies completely. What does that look like for you? For me, it was just I had to get out of there. I just needed to get out onto the street and just be able to breathe because it was too, um, so because it was too, just too much. Um, and so in that instance, I think I kind of just said, I'm, I'm leaving, like that's it, I'm kind of leaving. And I just come across as really princessy. <laughs> um, but often it will be a shutdown for me rather than natural meltdown and when I was younger it was very different I would throw myself on the floor yeah. I would um, often have a seizure at the end of a meltdown um, but yeah so so it can vary oh. but um, I don't think I'm very nice during a meltdown sadly yeah. so you, you you mentioned there that there is there is a possible association between EDS and autism is that confirmed there is there is um, limited research so far, okay. um, but often in the autism um, diagnostic criteria, it will talk about hypermobility. Yes, 
and um, often in the EDS criteria, it'll talk about neurological issues. Um, but there's a big piece of research being done at the moment, I believe, that's just starting. And I know that Jessica Eccles at Sussex Uni um, has done some um, uh, some research into hypermobility and autism and anxiety. So it's, it's start essentially it's starting, but yeah. anecdotally it's huge because it, you know I'd never met anyone um, autistic before my EDS diagnosis, and I'd never met anyone with EDS before, and now suddenly I have this whole community of autistic people with EDS, and everyone says the same. Yeah. yeah. So often I'll get people that write to me and say, "Oh, I read your book, and um, I read it because um, my do- my daughter's autistic or my son's autistic." Um, but then I realised that I looked up EDS and I realised that I have that too, and now I've got a diagnosis. Or women with autism who suddenly find that they realise they have EDS, or women with EDS who suddenly realise they're autistic. So it's just it's just there's just too many for it to be a coincidence. Yeah, okay. One of the things that I loved about your book is the way you jump forward and back in time and gradually build up this picture of, of, of your life. Um, out of interest, did you write it that way, in that order, where you jump forward and back, or did you write it in chronological order and then go back and mix it up? Um, I Because the um, main storyline is in real time, I wrote that in real time. So, okay. um, but the, and the rest of it, I wrote, um, the rest of it, I wrote slot in. Um, but I didn't write the backstory. I didn't write in real time. I wrote it when I felt in the mood to write one of those kind of specific scenes, really. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. So um, what I find fascinating is... You know, the fact that you existed and functioned for 45 years without knowledge of this. You you were married twice um, and, and both those men, obviously, when they married you, no clue that you're autistic. Um, and then obviously your husband's going to have to accept the diagnosis as well, which you cover in your book. It's just really fascinating. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about was you, Michael. Are they all the correct names or are they pseudonym names? I don't know. Uh- all the people I've been married to are correct. Some others okay. have been changed. <laughs> Excellent. So, um, Michael, first husband, you kind of spoke about how you just never felt connected to him. Yeah. I mean, it is really difficult to know what um, what is real, what is autism, what is being a 19-year-old, what is you know, all of those different things. It's very difficult to break it all down. But, no, I, I think I didn't feel the kind of connection that – other people seemed to feel that my friends seemed to feel about the people that they were marrying um but I was quite unwell um when when I married well well, um during the period that I was getting married I was pregnant when I got when I first got married like um a couple of weeks pregnant when I first married Michael um and I had a really difficult pregnancy I had kind of extreme morning sickness which is I think also common in EDS um and also quite common in autistic women I think too so I was in hospital for quite a lot of time then I had a tiny baby to look after um and then I um and then um, between my two children, I was misdiagnosed with something and was prescribed um, some quite hardcore tranquilizers. Yeah. And I was only like in my very early 20s and I didn't realize what they were. And so I became addicted and ended up in rehab. So so there was kind of an awful lot going on. Yes. Uh, yeah. So it's difficult to know. It's why difficult I'm to pinpoint it because one of the things <laughs> that I, I, I find reading your book is that as far as I know, I'm not autistic. Um 
and I say that now because so many people are getting late, diagnosed later in life, but as far as I know, I'm not, and I don't think I am, um, but I still can relate to an awful lot that's in your book. So my question is, where does a personality quirk start and stop and it become something that impacts on your life so much that you know, you, you're heading towards a diagnosis, if that makes sense? Yeah, I, I do think it makes sense. And I think it's important to remember that um, because because all autistic people are human, nothing we feel or do can be out of the human spectrum of emotions and feelings. Um, so I think I think it's I think it's complicated, but I think that. It's, and I think there are lots of people who are autistic but don't want a diagnosis or don't need a diagnosis. But I think that if it impacts your life in any way or if, you're, if you struggle or if you find things difficult to cope with, um, then and you would feel reassured by knowing yourself and knowing why that is. And I think a diagnosis is worth it. Yeah. For me, I think, it, I think and this is a problem for many autistic women, on the surface I'm exceptionally successful even by neurotypical standards, but that's because that's the face I present to the world, you know, and I think for autistic women um, particularly, but also autistic men too, are very good at pretending and very good at kind of putting on this mask. And I, um, I remember distinctly at five years old, standing in the school playground and looking at the other girls and thinking, I'm not like you. And then my next thought was, but I have to pretend that I am. And that was really clear. And I remember at that moment making the decision that I was going to copy them and pretend to like the things they liked and do the things they do. And I did that all my life. Mm -hmm. But the cost of pretending is really quite high. Yes. And, you know, and I look, you know, on the one hand, I look totally typical and I can see that and people don't really understand why. On the other hand, I have never been in a girl's night out. I've never been a bridesmaid. I've never... There are, there are so many things that I've never on a hen night. I don't have friendships in the way that other people do. My friendships are very different. I don't have a working life in the same way that other people do. Um, and I can hyper-focus on something so much that I'll forget to eat or shower for days. And I can go two or three days without eating. Or I can go uh, for a whole day and suddenly think, why do I think I'm going to faint? And then I realised it's seven o'clock and I haven't eaten anything at all. Mm. So... You know, and I didn't meet the milestones that people normally meet in their life. I'm terrified of a lot of stuff. You know, I get quite anxious about things. So, so for me, it was just absolutely worth knowing for certain what the issues were. Yeah, and and your job, and you touch on this in in the book as well. You know that you 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 interview for a living. You do lots of. Um, you can show you give me some tips at the end. <laughs> um, but you interview for a living. You deal with very high profile celebrities and all sorts um, and yet you manage that completely fine whereas lots of other people would be really intimidated by that yeah I think that the thing about an interview um either way being interviewed or interviewing somebody is it's transactional you know I understand what you need to get out of this and I understand what I need to do and I understand your role and my role and it's really simple and I could you know we could turn the tables and I could interview you about your job immediately and it would be completely fine but that's very different to meeting somebody at a party or in the queue in the supermarket and suddenly having to make random chat yeah that's really it's a really different thing um and I like my job and I like the fact that I can ask any question I want to ask 
and I really enjoy it and I really enjoy kind of finding the essence of a person and finding out what makes them tick but you know you can't do that in the supermarket queue (laughs) a bit weird if you try (laughs) absolutely um okay so then moving on you you kind of went through life and you had you, you married Tim and then all these things happened and you've got your four kids and then boom it's kind of hinted that you might have autism and you, you go and pursue that, you investigate it and, and you go and pursue that and you go through, um, was it a six hour kind of investigation and walked out the door with your diagnosis and came out feeling quite euphoric about it. Yeah, I did actually. It felt like a vindication because I, you know, I'd been saying for years, I didn't think that my brain works like other people's do and everyone had been saying, oh, don't be silly. And so, yeah, it just just felt great. It felt like I kind of finally knew myself in a way that I hadn't before. And it was, yeah, really wonderful um, for a little while. And then you kind of wake up and think, well, okay, that's great. Now I know, but everything's still the same. All the things I struggle with are still the same. Or, you know, all the way I perceive things are still the same. So, yeah, so it it was immediately brilliant. And then it was a bit of a light well, what now? Yes. So then you kind of went through a bit of a slump, really, where you were kind of a bit lost as to, well, what what was the point in all of that? And I've still got all my challenges and all the rest of it. And and you, you went for therapy and that made a big difference, didn't it? It really did, because I'd had therapy before. I had a lot of therapy before, um, and it had never really worked for me. And then I um, went and had cognitive analytical therapy, but specifically for um, someone with autism, and it was really helpful. Right. Really, really yeah. how, how does cognitive analytical therapy differ to cognitive behavioural therapy? What's the difference? I think um, the A is for analytical. So I think that there's some analysis as well as some um, behavioral changes. And also I found CBT a bit, I can't really describe it. I found it didn't really work for someone like me, um, whereas CAT did. And I think it's because it was very practical. Okay. So there were very practical strategies. So she would say to me, who supports you? for example, and I would have to kind of go away and think about who supports me, but also how I can utilise that and, and how, I, how it can make a difference in my life. Yes, yeah. I found it all a bit kind of um, paint by numbers. Yes, yeah, yeah. You kind of had clear guidance as to what to do to go away and work stuff out, um, but some of it quite challenging because probably just the way your brain's wired, not the kind of thing you would give thought to. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And and what about um, Tim then? When he got when, when he heard the diagnosis and the impact on him, how would you describe that? I think initially he was a bit diagnosed out because um, both Toby and I had had EDS, POTS, and MCAD diagnosis in the run up to this. So I think he was a bit like, really, no more, just no more. But um, and. Also, initially, I think, like most of us, he had very stereotypical ideas of autism and he couldn't quite get his head around how um, I, who, uh, you know, communicate for a living, could possibly be autistic. Mm-hmm. But then once I got the diagnosis and once I started writing about it and exploring it more, I think um, it made um, it made things better between us because I think it made me easier for him to understand. Yes. So do you think that uh, prior to your diagnosis, do you think your relationship became better afterwards? So do you think it was it was a struggle before in some ways or not or just different? I think it was just different. I don't think it was really a struggle. I mean, um, I think maybe he struggled to understand some elements of me. But um, but no, I mean, you know, it's a 20, 
three-year-old marriage. So, uh, you know, so, so it's been going a long time. But I think there were elements of my behavior he couldn't understand. And now that now it's, it's very easy for him. And that's going to help. Yes. And one of the things that actually one of my colleagues wanted me to ask you is that the, the whole sleeping in separate bedroom. Um, and, and actually my colleague's going through um, a late diagnosis herself. So she was like, that would just be amazing to sleep in separate bedroom from, from my husband. It would be awesome. In, and But you mentioned in your book, obviously, that you tell the public that it's because he snores or whatever else. Um, yeah. But the truth is so that you've got your own space and everything. So when that first happened, because obviously when you first got married, you must have shared a bedroom. Or did you never well, share a bedroom? Well, we sort of, so I'm trying to remember because it's a long time ago. But essentially, I think what used to happen was when we first got together, I think we used to go to bed together. And then in the night, I would just kind of migrate to another room. I mean, yeah, we were very lucky. We had lots of space. So I would just kind of go and go and sort of sleep somewhere else. Um, and then... And then eventually we just sort of decided to kind of set up proper separate rooms. Mm -hmm. But I think he likes it too. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I was going to say was, um, I'm not sure it's quite natural for humans to share a bed anyway. Because if you think think back and if you watch things like Downton Abbey or those kind of programs, then um, couples used to have separate bedrooms. So it was really a case of it being down to space. And if you have enough space, why wouldn't you? Yeah. I mean, really, really, anyone really enjoy sharing a bedroom with someone? <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Although I quite like the, the security of it. I like to know someone's there. You know, it's like my, yeah. my daughter, she, um, we've just come back from a weekend at a friend's at my godparents' diamond wedding. So that's 60 years, which is just incredible. And, you know, every night my daughter goes to bed, we have to go back and check her a billion times. So she knows we're there until she falls asleep. Um, but when we're away in the Premier Inn and we're all in the same room, she's out like a light because somebody's there. Yeah, I don't think I had that. I didn't think I had. I didn't think I ever had that need really. Yeah. Because I think I'm quite practical and quite logical, and my logic could be, you know, how far away are you going to be anyway? You're just going to be down the hall. So. Yeah. So yeah. So so I don't really get that, and I really like. Um, I really like my own space and how and I can have it exactly how I want it and my bed exactly how I want it and all my stuff where I want it and yeah yeah so it just works for me yeah it just works well I'm sure there's there's lots of people that would feel the same way and um, so one of the other things uh, on on relationships is is love and you talk a bit about love and do you feel what is love and do you feel it in that way and then you kind of come to a bit of an acceptance of what that is talk to me about that I, I get really confused by how we have something that we talk about, like love, or the colour blue, or having a headache, and we all presume that everybody feels it the same as us, or perceives it the same as us, and, and we don't necessarily. And I think that, I remember once years ago reading, uh, I think it was The Road Less Travelled, or one of those kind of books, and it talks about love being an action, not a feeling. And I think that's quite, and I think that's quite true. I think that love is about how you behave towards somebody else, rather than what you feel and I think what we describe as romantic love is actually possibly not I think there's a bit of lust in there I think there's a bit of longing in there I think there's um you know there's all sorts of hormonal things going on but I'm not sure it's really love you know the, the way love songs are kind of written or romance novels and things like that I'm not sure that that's really properly love yeah. I think love is kind of 
being willing to share separate bedroom to not share a bedroom or love is kind of you know going out to the co-op in the middle of the night when it's really 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 freezing because someone wants a bar of chocolate I think that's that's kind of love not sort of sitting there kind of pining for somebody and and wonder will he won't he and all that kind of stuff so I think that I think it's just it's semantics um I certainly love people and I certainly go to the ends of the earth for my children mm-hmm. um to try with any problems they have or to kind of make them happy but I um but I'm not necessarily sure I perceive it in the way that other people do yes yeah no that makes sense but I'm I'm I'm, I'm with you on the actions thing I, I think that's it's it's treating people the way you want to be treated and yeah. and being thoughtful of and considerate of other people's needs definitely I think that's a big part of love so are, are you a tactile person is part of your autism have you got sensitivities in, in terms of tactile things or does that not affect you i don't i don't think i really um don't like being touched by strangers mm-hmm. and i don't like being touched by slimy children you know when children kind of are like toddlers when they're covered in kind of goop and not, um, yeah mm-hmm. yeah and I could never eat food off my children's plates. I remember being really horrified when I went to like the nursery school gates and the other mums would say, oh, I've put on so much weight because I'm always finishing off what's on their plates. And I was just thinking, oh my God, that's like eating out the dustbin. How can you possibly do that? So I, I think I have kind of issues issues around that sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. But, but yeah. Yeah, so but I just not- wondered, I'm always quite fascinated by um, where people have tactile sensitivities and being in a relationship and how that works whether that is a relationship with your child or or your husband but I guess yeah yeah it's interesting well I've managed to have four children so yeah. <laughs> um but um no I mean I don't think I don't think I kind of flinch from touch from people I know and people that I love but I think it is on my terms probably yes yeah, fair yeah. enough. Um, and one one of the other things that I was I was thinking about was uh, do, do you know Lana Grant? Have you come across Lana Grant? Yes. Yeah. So I... she's interested in women and motherhood, women on the spectrum of motherhood and labour and having children and and all of that. Um, and for you, because. Quite often, well, you get, it's different for everyone, but I'm thinking of one particular person I know who has autism who's got a very low pain threshold and, and she's young, so she's obviously not faced having children yet and she may never, who knows. Um, but is that something, looking back, that impacted on you at all? I have a very high pain threshold. Okay. So the opposite. So I have a very low tolerance for, for feeling different. So if I have a cold, I'm the worst person to be around. I mean, really, I am that kind of man flu kind of stereotype. But if there's something properly agonizing, like, you know, childbirth or having major surgery or something like that, then I won't take any drugs and I just get through it. And it is uh, quite, it is quite extraordinary. I mean, it is, it is notable and doctors do note it. Wow. Um, so, yeah, so that wasn't a problem for me at okay. all. Okay, because that's what's so fascinating, isn't it? It is just so different for everybody. And, yeah. And that's that's where you get the um, you, the misconceptions because people yeah. build a, a stereotypical picture and they think that's that's it. But it is different for everyone. So if, if you were going to say what were your top five autistic traits that make up your autism, what would you say they are? Well, that's a really good question. Um. I think it's my spiky profile. I think it's my ability to handle some things extraordinarily well and other things that should be very, very simple, really, really badly. 
Um, so it's one thing. I think it's the fact that my primary emotion is often fear. So I think I'm quite scared of quite a lot of stuff, but not in an anxiety way, but in a kind of afraid kind of way, which can be quite difficult to deal with. Okay. Um, I think I socialize in a very autistic way. Um, so I can only take a certain amount of socialization. And I need to have an awful lot of downtime afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, I've lost count. Is that three? I think that's three. Uh, yeah. And um, I have issues with uh, so a lot of sensory issues. So um, if I, I, my sense of smell is really extraordinary. So, um, and from really, really far away. So I can tell, I, when we used to live in quite a big house and when I was at the front door before I'd even opened it, I'd know which of my children's friends were in the house because of the deodorant or the aftershave or the perfume that they were wearing. Wow. No child could ever have an illicit cigarette within a hundred miles of me without me. <laughs> and and that can be quite that can be quite difficult to deal with and quite overwhelming, depending on what you're being exposed to. My hearing is really, really good too. Um, which means that I'm kind of quite often startled by small noises mm -hmm. and um, or I'm hearing things other people aren't hearing. And that makes you feel a bit like a bit odd um until you understand why. Um and then finally I think um, it's probably, I find inertia quite difficult to deal with. I find it incredibly difficult to start anything. So once I'm going, it's fine. Yeah. But I, I am capable of sitting down in a chair for an entire day, not mm. getting anything done, because the idea of just starting to do it is too much. Okay. Wow. Yeah, interesting. And, and um, special interests is something that you put uh, yeah. on in the book. Those, yeah. Yeah. So you you had Jilly Cooper was your special interest as a as a young adult stroke teen. Um, she yes, she was she was my special interest, but also she was my blueprint for life. So I kind of thought that everybody should live their life like a Jilly Cooper novel, which for a fourteen year old girl might not be that appropriate. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, but yeah, you you spoke about how you use that to understand a lot about emotion and relationships, yeah. and it became your, almost your bible of. That's what that means. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I did. Yeah. And the I think. Sorry, sorry. Go on. I think because um, because a, because a novel is quite extreme and also quite self-contained. I think it's quite a good way of learning about um, human emotion and how to behave around people and things like that. Yes. And you would reread them and reread them, wouldn't you? Yeah, I still do. Do you? Yeah. Brilliant. I just common years very recently yeah um so what what have been your favorite special interests over the years do you drop them because you've obviously not dropped that one so do you just get more and more or do you shelve some of the special interests so I work in trends and sometimes we call things a trend or like a macro trend or a fad and I have fads and I have trends okay. and so Billy Cooper would be a trend who will and she'll be around like forever as, as a special interest and I've interviewed her a number of times and so I actually like her as a person as well as kind of just her books and yeah. um, that's quite cool um, and then I don't know politics came onto my horizon um, quite suddenly with the whole Brexit thing yes. um, and politics has become an abiding interest. Whereas something like, I don't know, I might be interested in a particular brand of clothes or something like that, and that probably won't last that long. Okay. So, yeah, so they can kind of come and go. Yeah, because Brexit did cause you a lot of fear, didn't it? You, well, you it write did. in your book. It did. I think that 
the, the fear of the unknown is a really big deal to me. So um, having to do something for the first time can be very, very difficult for me. And the fact is that nobody knows what's going to happen. And I knew that at the time because I because I'd researched it so extensively and because I'd spoken to people on both sides of the argument and because I have a lot of political journalist friends and for lots of reasons I'd really researched it to death and then when um when the leave vote happened I knew that there was no plan in place and I don't understand how people aren't really now screaming the idea that you know it went from it went from this is going to be the most marvelous thing we've ever done to well it'll probably be okay in fifty years time and you know well there are lots of things you could do with spam and it's like it's like how can we be doing this without so it's not about the politics it's not about whether or not we should leave um, because that that was never the big issue for me I think it's you know it's a democratic vote but I think that if we are to leave we should kind of know how we're doing that. It's a bit yeah, like we're well, getting in the car and saying we're going on holiday. Where are we going? Don't know. Yeah, you know, well, that's never going to end well. No, it's a, it's all a bit bonkers, isn't it? But the frustrating thing is, it's and and this is something you, that you've had to come to terms with. I think is that you can't influence it. There's nothing you can do. No, that is quite hard. So yeah. you you by worrying about it, you're wasting energy on something that you can't affect. Yeah, and that is that is really quite difficult to deal with for me because I kind of always feel like there's got to be a solution. There's got to be some solution. Um, And the fact that for me, it suddenly felt like like no one was really in charge. I think I think I find that a bit scary. In the way you were talking about your daughter needing to know that you're physically there. Yeah. um, I think for me, I just need to know that there's some kind of structure in place where whatever happens, somebody will be in charge and will make it all all right. Yes. and it feels a bit fragile at the moment, and I find that quite scary. Yeah. Equally, um, you know, part of me would love to go in there and be involved in sorting it all out. And another part of me thinks that I just feel a great deal of sympathy for anyone who is having to wade through it all at the moment because it is so complicated. Yeah, it's a poison chalice, isn't it? Because you're just never going to keep everybody happy. And it's, yeah, it, it wouldn't be me. But at the same time, I know what you mean. You'd like to just get it by the throat and go right let's sort this out and have a plan yeah exactly exactly yeah, whatever that plan is do you reckon just as an aside nothing related to what we're talking about but i'd be interested in your view do you think you know there's this whole campaign of having another referendum and someone i saw on the news yesterday now who was it was it the super dry owner or something has pledged a million towards a campaign to have another referendum can you see it happening it- I think it's complicated. I, I genuinely don't know because the fact is we were told we were having a once in a lifetime vote. And, you know, I think I think it's complicated by a number of factors. The fact that um, that we're now not in a position to get what we were told we were going to get if we voted to leave. So I think that that means that that's a possibility there. But also, I think that um, I think that the people's vote that they're talking about isn't really, it's voting on the terms. And certainly the one thing I am really good at is taking the temperature of, of what's going on. Um, and it would seem to me at the moment that there is more of an appetite to remain than leave currently. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it, it is, it's like Alice in Wonderland. Mm-hmm. It, we've gone down the rabbit hole and I just don't know how you get back up. And that's one of the things I find quite anxious making. But on that, taking the temperature, you're quite good at that. You you say in your book that you knew it was going to be a leave for Brexit. You knew Trump was going to get in and nobody else around you was listening to you. But 
No, no, no. I went. To, I went to um, to the American Embassy on the um, um, uh, the American election night, and with a friend. And um, occasionally, he'd, he'd introduce me to people and say, "This is Laura. She thinks that Trump's going to win." And they're all like, "Oh, sweet!" And then, like, <laughs> and then suddenly it became really apparent that this was it was always going to happen and I couldn't understand why nobody would take me seriously on Brexit or or on Trump mm. because it was just it was just obvious and I think part of the reason and I think this is an autistic thing I think part of the reason is that the squeamishness was removed from me so whereas my friends would say things like women won't vote for Trump after that tape came out they're like women won't vote for Trump mm-hmm. that because they couldn't believe because they wouldn't because of yes. what they, they couldn't believe it so I think that echo chamber thing's very true and the other thing is that people um, people just wouldn't go out and talk to other people. So I joined loads of Brexit groups and loads of Trump supporters groups. And I talked to people and I asked them why and, and what they thought would be better and why they wanted to do it and where it would go. And then often those um, – and I joined lots of Remain groups and, and Hillary groups as well and talked to those people – and I think that the passion behind um, the Leave campaign and behind Trump was way bigger than the passion behind Remain and Hillary. Um, and to a degree, change, you know, change brings about some kind of momentum and some kind of group energy in the way that staying the same just doesn't. So, mm-hmm. so it just seemed entirely obvious to me. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, if, if we, because I live in Dundee, um, so I'm I'm still waiting for the next Scottish independence referendum, which will happen. So when that happens, I'll drop you an email, and you can predict what's going to happen. You can take the test. Yeah, I do. I'd be I'd be really interesting to interested to watch that because I think at the moment, if if there, if a Scottish referendum was called tomorrow and you all went to vote tomorrow, I think that it would be fifty fifty to split right down the middle. But I think straight after the referendum. Um, then a, um, a Scottish Leave campaign probably would have won. So it's, it's just interesting to see how things change. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's fascinating. Um, so, yeah, you obviously have a bit of a political special interest. So out of the other special interests you've had over your life, have you got like a top two favourites? Um, well, books and literature would be my favourite. I There's never a time when I'm not reading. Okay. Um, but I think that it's kind of weird because I think that the overarching special interest I have is gaining knowledge. It's facts. I think I really like facts. Yeah. And they make me very happy. And obviously, there are different times in your life where different facts matter. So when um, my um, when my children were little, it was kind of sort of, you know, mothering facts and parenting facts and kind of, you know, psychology and child psychology and stuff like that. Um, whereas now they're older and, and so it's more about the kind of, you know, it's, it's more about me suddenly again. Yeah. But yeah, it is all, it is all about facts um, in the end. But at the, currently at the moment, it will be books and politics. Yeah. Okay, cool. But also I'm starting, um, also autism, interestingly, um, has become something that is completely part of my life obviously now but also something of a special interest and I think that's quite common and I don't know have you come across Jessie Hewitson who write who wrote um she'd be a great person to interview actually she wrote a book called autism how to raise a happy autistic child no yeah she's really great and 
I met her when my book was just coming out and she was halfway through writing hers. And we've kind of worked together now for quite a long time. Um, I helped her with her book. We've done book tours together. And she and I have really noticed that one of the things that we um, come up against a lot when people ask questions in our book tours is about what kind of supports available and what kind of helps available for adults and children, but mainly for children. And often people will say that they've tried all sorts of extraordinary things that um, are that range from, um, on the one hand, ridiculous, useless, and very expensive, and on the other hand, to quite dangerous. So um, we are in the process of setting up an autism consultancy where kind of a kind of parent coaching where we help people um where we help parents navigate the system essentially where we kind of give them hope and we just give them advice on how to raise a happy autistic child rather than um rather than kind of let them go down a path where they might do something that will cost them a lot of money and do no good and possibly some harm yeah kind of just kind of sort of try and help a bit in that way so that's that's kind of a big special interest at the moment, getting that all up and running. That it's, sounds amazing. Yeah. I'll, I'll talk to you about that later because I think there's some things we could maybe do together on that. That would be, that'd be awesome because yeah. I, just, I just think that the I think part of the problem is parents are, by and large, the parents of young um, children who are diagnosed are young themselves. Like me, I mean, I've written about health for 20 years by the time I got my diagnosis, but still didn't know that much about autism. Yeah. And I think you're just kind of left in this position where you're told your child's autistic, told that there isn't that much help available and left to get on with it. And I think that there is, I, I, I think that, that there is so much hope and so much good stuff that could that, that they could be thinking about but instead they're just kind of really worrying yes. so I, th- I just think that it could be um, something that's really useful and I also think although I don't think you're an example of this is that from all the people that I've spoken to and interviewed so far there seems to be <clears throat> quite a strong link um, and this is kind of anecdotally from talking to people so not based on fact but quite a strong link between mental illness another comorbidity of having some kind of mental illness problem and autism if it's not caught early enough i think that that's true yeah i think that's true and i've certainly <coughs> had my life where i've suffered from an anxiety disorder yeah and i think that um and i think that that makes real sense but if you know your body isn't working correctly with the eds and you know that you're perceiving the world differently and everyone's telling you it's all in your head why would you not be anxious it's a bit like living in some kind of cash-grasque universe where everyone's telling you something you know not to be true so so i think that that's one thing i also think that um dealing with the world can bring on mental health problems um for um for autistic people i'm very lucky my life has fallen into place really neatly in as much as you know i work from home um i set my own timelines my own hours what i want to do um and all of those things but i do know that at times i do feel unable to cope um and i know that if i if my life had turned out different and i had to do a different kind of job or i had different kinds of worries that i wouldn't be able to cope yeah um and i think that had i have been diagnosed in childhood and had there have been plans in place and advice in place then i would have been given that i, I think you can make a child resilient mm-hmm. um if if you're not if you're kind of if you're supporting that child i think lots of the interventions tend to tell a child that they're doing things wrong um which kind of impacts on your self-esteem and i certainly had that a lot in childhood whereas if you get it right right from the start then 
you know, and I think that's true of all children. You know, if you raise a child really well right from the beginning, things are generally going to go quite well, you know, hopefully. Or certainly when things go badly or if they encounter problems or if they do encounter encounter mental health issues, they are, you know, if they've got that support network in place, um, then it's going to make things easier. Yes, totally. And and the earlier that that can be put in place for these children, the better. It definitely has a better outcome. Because I, I just think it's exactly what you hit on with the whole self-esteem, that if, if I'd grown up feeling different in the way that you did, that would just affect so much, wouldn't it? It would just affect the very core of who you are and not knowing who you are. And you, you can see how that would roll into other things. I think you find reasons. Um, and I was quite lucky in one respect that I was adopted. Okay. So I put a lot of my differences down to the fact that I was adopted, which isn't, you know, which is just a fact. It's not anyone's fault. Yes. Whereas I think other people who weren't in that position will put it down to something that inter- they'll internalize it and make them. And so find that reason. But that reason will be because they are not good enough. Yes. Um, I don't think that was. But I also think that um, you talk about mental health. I also think that. Um, Certainly getting a diagnosis and not being able to access the right help and support can impact on the emotional well-being of parents as well. Yes. Um, because I think that you know, all parents want to do their best. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And, and if, you're, if, you're, if you don't know what that best is and what you're trying isn't working, and if your child isn't happy, then that's going to affect your self-esteem as a parent and your emotional well-being and potentially mental health. Yes. There's a a saying, I don't know who said it, but there's one of my favourite sayings is you're only ever as happy as your unhappiest child. Yeah, I heard that first about three years ago from um, somebody who I used to work with. And I completely agree. Yes. Completely agree, yeah. And I know that um, I have my, my children are going through all sorts of turmoil at the moment, various, various ones of them. And, and it is. You can't sleep and, you you know, everything is affected by it. So, okay. yeah, it's, it's very, very true. So I think we're just trying to hopefully offer a way to offer that kind of sort of support to parents, a really non-judgmental support so that they can kind of get everything in place for them. And also I think it's important for parents to take time out for themselves. Yes, and that's something that people are really bad at in general in life. Yeah, really bad. Yeah, I think we're all really bad at it. Um, But sometimes I think that um, if you have someone else telling you, then it can it can just help yes totally it can give you almost give you permission to do it yeah exactly yeah so the, the other thing I wanted to touch on was you you mentioned you know you had a bit of anxiety when you were younger and um you mentioned now that it's less anxiety it's more fear so if you were going to describe the difference between the two how would you explain it so when I had no so I um so when I was very, very anxious or when I had an anxiety problem, it was a physical feeling. I would physically feel like I was panicking and then I would and then I would go into a full blown panic attack. Okay. And it, but it was all very physically based and there wasn't necessarily um, anything robust behind it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So now, um, but always and now, now as well as, and I managed to kind of get over that. But now. Now, as all uh, as has always been the case, I am scared of stuff. Like I'm scared of Brexit, so I don't understand how neurotypical people can tune out the fact that we have the news, news reports 24 hours a day telling us stuff like um, we might not have enough medicine um, when we leave the EU, 
or the climate is changing so much that, um, you know, entire cities are going to be underwater. Why is everyone not walking around scared about that? Yeah, yeah, we should be. Um, but at the same time, do, do you, I mean, you work in media, so do you not question how much of it is the whole truth sometimes as well? And some no, of it- I don't. You know, do you know what? No, I don't. But one thing that, uh, yes and no. I mean, I think you need, I think that it would be really useful if we could teach children in schools how to recognize fact how, how to analyze what, what's actually factual i don't worry about it myself because that's what i'm good at i'm good at kind of looking um looking at different sources and working out what the actual truth is um so um so no i i and i don't believe that we're being fed a diet of fake news i simply don't believe that's true i believe that the majority of journalists are good people but i think that there's always two ways to spin a story exactly. and i think if you get all your news from one place then that's bad but there are things some things that are irrefutable you know we are leaving the or currently we are leaving the eu and it's going to cause problems yes. if if we press out with no deal it's going to cause problems and so i don't understand why people aren't scared about that if you see what I mean. And I don't understand how people can, well, I guess it's confirmation bias. People can read, read an article that says what they want it to say. So yes. that will be it. And, and they'll choose their media. And I find that scary. And things like, the other thing I find scary is that people, that there is so much information out there, for example, about vaccines, mm. yet still we have a measles epidemic. Yeah. Because people will read, um, uh, you know, we'll read a piece in some, you know, on some blog somewhere or something and say and, and decide that there's some kind of conspiracy going on where gov- where worldwide governments and every single doctor are willing to kind of endanger children. That fright- that I find that makes me very fearful. Yes. It makes me very fearful that people believe that. Yeah. So is, is your is it is it more your frustration with people? than the the fear if you see what I mean no no because actually I'm not actually I don't really get frustrated in that way I get scared that okay. and that maybe that's where the where the kind of fault in my thinking lies yeah. that I don't get frustrated because I think that everybody is um one of my children who is very into philosophy um constantly tells me we have no free will and we're just uh, we're all a product of our genes and our experience so no I don't get frustrated with people because everyone's fighting their own battle and everyone comes to the position that they're at through their own experiences so I just but I just get scared that if enough people believe that vaccines um are dangerous then we're all going to die of measles (laughs) or if enough people believe that climate change isn't an issue then we're all going to sink. And, you know, so, so I think, I think it's just a fear that I just think it's a fear of illogicality. I like logic. Yeah. 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 You know, you look at the facts, the facts of this, why are people not taking this seriously? Because it's serious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it's, it's, it's the fear of the madness of crowds as well, that if enough people, Yes, I'm terrified of that. I'm terrified of that on a physical basis. So I couldn't go to, um, I couldn't, I can't go anywhere really crowded. I accidentally got caught up in um, Pride in London um, when I was trying to walk somewhere a few years ago. And it was one of the most terrifying experiences of my life because I ended up in a kind of very, very narrow kind of side street in Soho with hundreds and hundreds of people and I couldn't move. And that really, so that frightens me on a physical level. And on an emotional level, it does frighten me. The idea that people can be, that people can be led down, down the wrong path or, or a dangerous path and, yeah. and just believe it. 
because everybody else is believing it. Yes. I find that quite scary. Yeah. And so is it is it therefore like a lack of control, a lack of power? Not not power in the sense of being, you know, a king, but you, you're powerless to change it. You're powerless to... Is that the root of what causes the fear or is it the actual possible consequence of something? No, I don't really... I, you know, I am quite lucky in many respects. I'm, I have more power or more agency than many people. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a journalist. If I want to write about something, um, by and large, I can find an outlet to allow me to write about it. So that... Or I can write a book or I can... Or, you know, and I have conversations like this. And so, so no, I don't think it is a power... I don't think it is a powerlessness thing with me. Um, although I do notice that in certain situations where, you know, where that something comes up in life that you have to deal with and you and you are powerless against the system and I do find that frustrating and exhausting um and mentally draining but it doesn't make me scared in the way that no I just I'm just scared of consequences I want everyone to be I just want everyone to be given little fact books on everything (laughs) and and then everyone to read them and say oh yes that makes sense and then we all do the same thing that's what I want yeah okay that makes sense um so going back to your, your therapy what I would like is I mean you've you've obviously got you wary of defenders sometimes because you're noise sensitive that's one of the strategies that you mentioned in your book If if you were, based on your experience, if you were going to say to our audience, these are three challenges that I have and three strategies that I find help that they could maybe take away and use to help in their life, what what would you tell them? Um, Yes, so have a sensory kit. If you're going to go into an environment you know is going to be difficult, have a sensory kit. So that can be ear defenders or noise cancelling headphones. Um, I like to have soft things. So if I'm going, if I have to go on a train journey or something, I'll generally kind of take a soft sweater or something that I can kind of wrap up in, even if if the weather's warm. Mm. Um, I'll spray the only perfume that I can tolerate onto a scarf or something. So if I'm assailed by smells of other people's horrible fast food on the train, I'll be able to kind of breathe in that sense um dark glasses i find very helpful um and and trying to avoid places when they're busy so if i know that there's a particular environment i find hard i'll try and go very first thing in the morning or at a time when i know it's going to be quiet shopping when the football was on when the world cup was on was amazing because nobody (laughs) else was there it's great um so so those so i think that's one um another thing i think um for me has been really useful is to kind of find your tribe so find other people who think like you and i think it's very easy to think that all autistic people will get on with all other autistic people which is a bit like thinking all neurotypical people will get on with each other and we know for a fact that's not true so i think it's about um yes finding a group of people that that can be your we that can be that you really kind of get and i've certainly found that um i've certainly found that since my diagnosis and um and there are lots of kind of groups on facebook or kind of hashtags on twitter or things like things like that where you can meet people with who think very similarly to you and i think that that's incredibly um that's incredibly useful um and my third coping strategy i think would be that by and large pretty much everyone i've come across regardless of their age once they're sentient and once they can communicate um, how they're feeling, will say that they have in some way felt less or like it's their fault or or like they're not trying hard enough or something like that. Um, and I think that, so I think it's really important for 
that for us to surround ourselves with people who are validating and who validate our experience and who make us feel that we're not failing. But I also think it's very important that we learn to talk to ourselves like that as well. Yeah. I think very often we have this voice in our head that tells ourselves how bad we are or how we're not doing well enough or how we're not trying hard enough on all of those things. And if you imagine having that conversation with your best friend, friend and the words you use in your head if you imagine if you said it to somebody else you'd be considered to be abusive mm-hmm. you know, if you said it to someone you're married to it probably probably would be considered to be an abusive wife or husband yes. so, so how can we do it to ourselves so i think it is that kind of learn to find a way to validate yourself yeah brilliant so for you getting an autism diagnosis you would say was something that's been a positive experience Yes, I think it has. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just think that for somebody who is so obsessed with facts, knowing absolutely 100% that these are the issues that I have made such a difference to me because before I was kind of trying to fix something before I knew what the problem was. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit like taking a car in for a service and the brakes are faulty, but they kind of remove everything else first of all, change the exhaust and still not fixing it. And that's what I was doing. One of the most pleasing bits of your book, one of the bits that just just made my heart fill with joy was your coming out piece to the Telegraph. And, And the response that that got and the support that you got on the back of that. And, and that just kind of, I mean, it's an awareness thing as well. Obviously, you're raising awareness, um, which is a, a big passion of yours now, too. But um, to know that most people are good people and that they're, they're supportive of you. They are. They really, most, most people really are very, very good. And, and most, people want, most people want the best for everyone. And I've, I've found that really, really great. I mean, um, Jesse and I do a lot of bookshop events and stuff like that. And the questions from people are gen, generally, like 99.9% of the time, they're really interested, engaged, curious. Um, yeah, and that's wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that has been really interesting. Is there anything like, what's your next mission? Um, Because obviously you've got what you're doing with with Jessie, which sounds amazing, and we'll talk more about that, definitely. Um, But what else? What is your kind of big goal? I'm, I'm, well, I'm, uh, at the moment it's been just kind of, we've moved house relatively recently, so it's all been kind of a bit, a lot of change has been going on. So. I think my big goal, apart from the thing I'm doing with Jesse, which is like one of my major work goals, I think it's writing my next book, which I'm kind of sort of playing with at the moment and oh. trying to get. Yeah. Are you able to reveal? Is it along similar lines or completely different? Um, it is. It's similar in that it's kind of human based and human focused. Um, I'm looking at writing um a book on sadness. I don't think that we explore sadness as a subject enough. Mm. Hmm, interesting. I think we do a lot of mental health and I think we do brilliantly on mental health and it's mm. really, really great. But what I don't don't think we do is um look enough about the kind of the natural spectrum of human emotion. That I think will be really fascinating because that again, going back to my daughter, I have got a son as well who's equally wonderful, but she's she's um quite an anxious little thing. She sometimes will come and say to me, I just feel sad and I don't know why. And yeah. I'm quite logical in that well I, I can't understand why you would be sad because you've you've got a roof over your head and you've got parents who love you and you go to a nice school and you've got lots of friends and you want for nothing and everything's just try and figure out why you're sad because yeah. I, can't, I can't help unless I know why you're sad 
I, I agree. And I think that, that, and I think we're all like that. And one of the reasons I came to wanting to write on this subject is because I realized I did that to my children a lot too. Yes. That snow plow mother thing, wanting to get rid of whatever the obstacle is. And now I've, and, but I was very sad for quite a while. At the end, of the, kind of the middle section of my book, I was quite sad. I was um, sad because my children were leaving home and because my life was changing and because that period was over. And I think through that, I learned that actually it's really important to sit with sadness. And as a culture, we're really bad at, we're really bad at sadness. You know, we have, you know, sad also means kind of, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, if you say something, oh, it's a bit sad, it's like, oh, it's a bit rubbish. And, yeah. you know, uh, whereas whereas other cultures have extraordinary words for sadness and they have they have loads of definitions of it and everyone understands like you know for example there are words in some languages that explain the particular sadness when a visitor leaves or the particular sadness of entropy knowing that however good something is in this moment then it will change and yeah. you know and i just think we should be more like that really so yeah. i'm quite fascinated by sadness right now <laughs> yeah and no, that I, I will well i'll keep an eye for that coming out because i think i would find it really useful because when i have those conversations with my daughter afterwards i hate myself for it because i think i know i'm not helping and i know i'm making it worse and you you know what i mean it's like but it's not you it's just our culture yes it? And I think it's that, it's asking that question: What does sadness feel like? You know, where are you feeling your sadness? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and for for a child to say, "Oh, in my chest, or in my tummy, or in my head, or whatever," and just kind of talking about it, and and also exploring why sadness is good because it, you know it is a catalyst for change very often. Mm. Yeah, um, I suppose that's a good way of looking at it. And also, it makes us slow down. And I think that kind of in the way that we have like kind of who goes into the national, conf, uh, you know, the national consciousness for kind of how to deal with winter i think that there needs to be kind of a hugeness of sad, a kind of hugger of sadness to kind of allow us to cocoon and wrap up so yeah so i'm quite enjoying it yeah great well that sounds fun and my last question before we go is um out of all the people that you've interviewed in your life who's your favorite oh that is such a difficult question um i once interviewed robbie coltrane up a mountain in scotland that was wow. quite yeah um that that was quite fun um julie cooper was obviously amazing to interview because everyone says you shouldn't meet your heroes and she was the first person i ever ever interviewed so that was yeah it's quite interesting um i don't know i interviewed dan walker um not long ago and he was quite interesting Mm -hmm. um because i was very kind of news obsessed at that time yeah and very politics obsessed so he was yeah but everyone I mean I think the thing about interviewing people is it is very very rare that you find someone that that you find someone that you just really can't find something about that's amazing mm-hmm. I interviewed Marco Pierre White um and he was so complex and so interesting and and so so meant so multi-layered and I think that, it, that it's really great to be able to do that but I'm not sure about a favorite. Favorite would be really hard. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, thank you very, very much, Laura. That has been really oh, I interesting. To... Oh, Sorry, well. I interviewed Mary Berry. I've interviewed Mary Berry a, oh. a number of times, and the thing that I love about interviewing her is that she and, and I kind of work with her for twenty or so years, and she's exactly what you see is what you get. She's exactly that person you see on the Bake Off, and I find something really reassuring about that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. She seems like a lovely woman. And she, seems, yeah, she, she looks is. tiny. Is she tiny? Yes. Yeah. Bless her. <laughs> and she does good cakes. Yeah, cakes. Cake is the answer to everything. That's, that's what I should end this with. Cake is the answer to everything. Brilliant. What problem? <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, thank you very much, Laura. It's been an absolute pleasure. Really fascinating. I've genuinely loved your book. So I'm going to hold it up again. 
in case I'm sure most people probably know of it, but Odd Girl Out, Laura James, got mine on Amazon, so, but I'm sure you can get it at all good bookstores as well. Um, so thank you very much, Laura, for your time. Thank you for having me. No problem. Wow. That was really, really good. Um, I'm a real fan of Laura James myself. Her book is amazing. When I read her book, it felt like I was reading about my own life. I won't go into detail, obviously, but pretty much reading it, I was like, oh my God, that's just me. Um, and as a lot of you know, I am pursuing a diagnosis. I'm not yet diagnosed. But after reading the book, I was like, yeah, I think I definitely should go for this. But what I took from, um, from that podcast with Laura James was the fact that when she was diagnosed with EDS she thought that everybody just felt like that and I get that a lot with Jamie she didn't realize that her pains were any different to anybody else and when she couldn't see she said to me mom but I just thought that's how you see the world I took her for her eye test she got glasses and she was like oh my god I can see the world in 3D so so many things that are the same um I loved her view on love going out to the cult to buy a bar of chocolate that's just amazing um Brexit kind of blew my head away a little bit because I'm not that good with politics but I think Jamie would have enjoyed that so I'll get her to listen to it afterwards. Um, oh, um, who wouldn't want their own bedroom if they had the space? Honestly, I mean, you can you can have a partner and you can be in love, but sleeping in your own bed, oh, I would just absolutely love that. Um, yes, yeah, so I hope you all enjoyed that. You can see I'm a bit fangirly again. Um, totally love Laura James and her book. Sorry. Um, yeah, also this week, don't forget throughout Halloween or throughout, throughout October, you can get any cat or school pendant and then get another cat or school pendant for half price all you need to do is enter the code halloween at checkout so go and enjoy that we've got loads of content coming up this this month it's adhd awareness month it's dyspraxia awareness week um halloween we just got so much content for you guys so we hope you've enjoyed that podcast next week we have emily from 21 and century so i'm really looking forward to that too and we'll see you again soon bye you know what